Welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion. This is a different kind of podcast. It is not an interview, but an effort to demonstrate and share conversations that are rooted in compassion and empathy. My hope is through these conversations, we can help resolve the discord in our families, ourselves, and our communities, and focus on the most important need of our time, the need for compassion. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy this enlightening conversation. So, Michelle, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. I'm excited to be here. So, tell me, at this point in your life, what would, what would you like to say to people? That is an interesting question. And it's one I've been posing to myself a lot. Like, what would I want to say to myself? Um, which I think is the deeper question. Um, you know, one of the things that has been very big for me lately is... Um, you know, like a fearlessness, a courage, um, just to 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 be myself and to look at all aspects of myself and to be able to embrace that without any sort of judgment um, as good or bad or you know better than, less than, um, and just just be, which I think is one of the roots of human suffering and not so easily done, um, but is definitely been proven to be a worthwhile experience for me thus far. So you're trying to sort out in the fog of suffering, you know, how do you be in this time, this place, this moment? Yeah. um, How do I separate experiences that happen to me and with me and involving me and around me from who I am at the core? Right. And, And just finding that somehow is a really struggle because there's the mind that takes on what people say or do. And then there's the heart that sort of has this other language, this other way of talking. Exactly. And for somebody like me who has spent most of their life living in their head, Mm. it is not an easy thing to transition to. Um, Mm. You know, when you spend 37 years living one way, it is not an overnight matter to just all of a sudden live Mm. another way. And, you know, living from the heart is... um, a much more courageous act, um, and it definitely takes, you know, a huge leap of faith to do. You said it's not been easy. I have spent a lot of my life very divorced from my emotions. Um, I grew up in a very traumatic environment. Like, say the first 17 years of my life were pretty much constant trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, living in your head is a much more survivable way of living Mm. um, when everything around you is um, very harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, And it gives you a way to kind of process and survive what's going on. And so, um, you know, spending so much of your life living that way and relying on on that, you know, your intellect, your thought, um, your intelligence to protect you is not an easy thing to just set aside and trust that now— if I open up, that I will be okay. So you could feel that that first 17 years was so traumatic that 
the smartest thing for me to do is to stay in my head and really be smart and try to sort things out. Um, and it and it has consequences. It definitely has consequences. Um, it does have a lot of benefits as well. Um, otherwise, you know, I would not live that way. Um, one of the huge benefits was in the way that society responded to me. Um, you know, people, especially when you're a child, really like smart people. And it helped me to um, gain a lot of advantages that I wouldn't have, especially coming from the situation that I did. Um, but it definitely came to a place where it was no longer serving me, um, especially as an adult, um, because at some point that trauma doesn't, you know, it doesn't go away. It's still there and um, you can't outthink it. And so, you know, at some point you need to either set that aside or keep living in the repetitive pattern of trying to overpower it with your intellect and then constantly having it come back up. It's a, it's a horrible process to keep trying to overpower something while something else is trying to come in, which is the which is the heart, which is I want to connect with people. I don't want to just think my way through, and that that seems like an incredible conflict. It is an incredible conflict, and it's very confusing um, because I never had any emotional skills. You know, I I didn't have emotional attachments with my parents. Um, I never, I didn't grow up with like good loving relationships. And so I didn't know I was missing that. And I was missing that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, for a very long time, I really had no idea what was going on inside myself whatsoever. And that conflict created a whole set of consequences in your life that you didn't have the emotional life that people are giving you kudos for your being bright for being smart, but something you, you could feel something missing. Yes, um, it was very difficult for me to really connect with people. Um, it was well, let me put it this way: it was very easy for me to just drop people, mm. um, which, after a number of years of doing that. I started to realize, oh, hey, this isn't the way that most people have relationships. They actually have long-term relationships with people. And so what is going on with me that I'm not able to do that? Or less that I'm not able to, but that it's so easy for me not to. And so why, why is that? And that's when I started to look kind of underneath and start to feel like, oh, there's actually some emotional stuff going on here that's, that's deeply attached to this. You went to look underneath. Can you say anything about that? Um, well, there were a number of circumstances that caused me to look underneath. Um, you know, one is that um, I'm an alcoholic, and finally, by the age of 28, I realized that I was an alcoholic, um, which isn't terribly surprising. Both of my parents were extreme alcoholic addicts, and, um, and so... When I got sober at the age of 28, um, there was a huge process of, you know, having to look at what was actually going on with me so that I could create some sort of change because I didn't want to continue living the way that I was living. Um, a couple of years later, I had a child and I was always very deliberate that I did not want to have a child until I could ensure that I was not going to raise my child the way that I was raised. Um, and... Not having dealt with the trauma that happened, um, you know, I didn't realize that having a child would bring so much of it up and so quickly. And on top of that, you know, like exhausted and, mm -hmm. you know, all the regular stuff that goes along with parenthood. Um, 
And on top of that, my daughter um, was born with cystic fibrosis as well. And so then there's that. And so there were all these layers that just were triggering, you know, um, just memories of childhood or even just triggering like like the ghost emotion of not having attachment as I'm, you know, raising a child with some sort of love. Um, and And it became really clear to me at that point that if I did not figure this out, I was going to pass it on in one one fashion or another, you know, like I wasn't going to be extremely abusive like my parents were. I wasn't going to be neglectful like my parents were, but the emotional piece, you know, would not be there. And I did not want to do that. You you knew that the emotional attachment was necessary for your child. Yes. And then when you got there as a mother, you realized there's a part of me that doesn't know how to do this. That must have been terrifying. It was terrifying, um, and it began some of the hardest time of my life um, because I was trying to be really open to this, you know, this new beautiful being, Mm. and I've never been really open ever in my entire life, um, and I don't know how to do that. And um, at the time, I really did not have many supports that I was accessing, not that I didn't have supports out there, but I was not in a place where I was looking to get any sort of support. Um, It was like I was trying to actively shut off and open up at the same time. Um, And, you know, there was just so much, like, PTSD stuff that was happening as well that um, I was almost, I was really not in control of a lot of myself for quite a while um, because, like I said, you know, PTSD reactions just, like, happen and then they kind of just take over and kind of put you into, like, a survival mode um, and there's, there is not a lot of control that happens in those moments. When you use the words PTSD, you're talking about the trauma, the, the massive amounts of trauma that was in your childhood when you said that they weren't there for you, they were alcoholic, they were neglectful or abusive, that that was sitting in your body and that when this child came and you were holding and you knew something, I need to do something different, and you felt like you had no skill, that it just brought this incredible moment in your life where you're terrified. Like, what do I do? How do I do this? I don't even have support systems. Yes. Um, And, you know, you say moment, and there were moments, but it really was more of a process over a number of years of getting to that place um, of even just acceptance that I I didn't know what I was doing and that I really did need a lot of help, um, you know, and there were a number of relapses that happened um, with alcohol in those in those early years. And, you know, it finally got to the point where I felt like I cannot do this. Every time before that that I had tried to do something, it was always like, okay, I'm smart enough. I understand this. I will definitely be able to do this. I just need to do A, B, and C, and then everything will be okay forever. And that's how I'd always lived, you know, problem, solution, problem, solution. And I'm pretty smart, so I'll be able to find that solution, and I'll be able to do it, and it will work. Even though years and years and years of experience had taught me that Generally, the solutions, while they may work for a period of time, were not long-term solutions and that things would fall apart again. Um, 
And so, you know, I finally got to a place where I was just so beaten down that I was like, you know what, I can't figure this out. I cannot figure this out. And I don't know if I'm actually ever going to be okay. Um, And that was the place for me where I was able to actually start being really open Mm. because I was so desperate and I realized that I could not do it myself. And so I had to have other people help me. I was forced to open up and trust other people. It's almost as if the love that you cared for, that you felt for your daughter, was the the telling point that I can't do it. And you're relapsing and you're feeling guilty and ashamed and you hit a bottom almost. And you're sort of saying in some kind of beautiful humility, help, I can't, I can't think it out. can't come up with a theory. I can't read a book. I can't, something broke you open right there. Yeah, um, you know, having my daughter was the first time in my life that I was kind of pinned down in one spot. Um, When I grew up, we moved every year. I didn't Mm -hmm. go to the same school twice until seventh and eighth grade because my parents would stop paying rent and then we'd be evicted and then we moved somewhere else. Um, And so, you know, my whole life was kind of just, this didn't work out, move on to the next thing um, and never really staying in one place very long. And if things weren't really working, I just cut and run and build something up new somewhere else where people didn't know what had happened before. And now I have this child that um, is there and I need to be there for, and this is going to be a long-term thing. And uh, I, I can't, I, I can't escape this short of just leaving my child, which for me was not an option. So is that that was the moment, you, you know, I mean, again, a process, but but a moment where you kind of almost hit a humble moment in your life where you said, I, I can't do it. I can't think it out. I can't figure it out. I can't read something. I can't, there isn't something, some lecture I can go to. Right. So, so from that, what would you want to tell people about your journey out of that hole, out of that, I I would imagine, pretty dark. Um, Well, one of the biggest things that I always avoided um, was letting people know what was going on inside of my head. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I first, like, went into 12-stepper, you know, um, got sober, I did change, you know, and I I did get honest. I started telling people what I was doing, right? And that was a huge, huge step for me. That was a big change. That was was a way of me being more honest. Um, But I didn't realize that in order to actually change, I needed to be honest about what was going on inside of my head because that was the stuff that was causing the behaviors. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the thing that I was the most afraid of. Um, I... Just the way that I grew up, there was, like, so much shame and so much stigma um, and so much unexplained, you know, behaviors that were just reactions that I was having that I didn't understand and I took on as, like, a personal failing. Like, oh, why can't you mm. Why can't you just get up and go to work every day? Why can't you mm. continuously show up and be a friend, you know? Why can't you just stop drinking? Um, why... Why would you relapse after having a child when your parents were alcoholics and you know how terrible that was? Um, And so, you know, I really took it on as a moral issue and was so ashamed of that that I didn't want 
to let anybody in um, because, you know, one, I, I was afraid of, you know, people seeing me for what I really was and, you know, finding me falling short of what I should be, that word should. Um, but the bigger thing was actually just me facing myself, mm. you know, mm. really seeing myself for what I was and would I be able to accept myself for what I was. So one of the things you would sort of say to people is that when, you, when, when you're in those moments, there's a way in which you have to be honest with your vulnerability and your truth to find a way out of this, whatever this is for you. Yes. And for you, it wasn't easy to do that. You could feel the two sides. You could feel like, I know I need to do that. And another part of you that says, you're smart, you're bright. You got a lot of kudos for that. You can do it. You can do it by yourself. Yeah, it was um, it was interesting because I would I would have that going on in my head, you know. So say something would happen, um, I would have an interaction with somebody, and there would you know there would be some like resentment feelings, or you know, most of the time it was actually just triggering a lot of like um, it felt like reenacting like an old family situation. Like this mm -hmm. person was treating me in this way, and this is how I always reacted in that way when. But, and so that's how I live most of my life. And once I started opening up to other people about that, then they could reflect back to me that, okay, yes, that is how you feel, but that's not the reality of the situation. But the difficult part was getting to the place where I actually could just tell somebody that that's what was going on. Um, you know, I lived most of my life with these, like, really strict rules for myself about how you should be in the world so that I would, I could be, you know, a quote-unquote good normal person, you know. And I had all of these standards that were so unachievably high um, that were, like, ten times higher than I expected of anybody else because I thought if I was, like, that good, then maybe that would make you know, if I could mm. perform at that level, that maybe I would then, it would bring me at least to the level of everybody else because I felt so bad about myself and where I had come from. Um, and so, you know, being able to, in those moments, feel my mind going, okay, you know what you should do, like, you know how to take care of this, and then just recognizing that and saying, you know what, I don't know. So let me just mm. let me just call somebody. And a lot of times it would be sending out a text and saying, remind me to talk with you about this later because I know I'm not going to want to. Because mm. I would know that in two minutes my mind would convince me it was no longer a big deal and that I didn't ever have to deal with it. Mm. You, you sort of learned how to squeal on yourself, I call it. Yes. Yeah, you learned how to kind of, you know, uh, just get it out quickly because if I don't, I know that my mind will take over again and sort of say it's not important and go back to that independence, uh, almost an isolation. And then I, I loved also the part of you that talked about the one of the ways I compensated was to go for perfection. I just drove for perfection. And that way nobody would ever see the shame. And I really appreciated you talking about that because that, that becomes a compulsion in and of itself, that you run for it, and you run for it, and you run for it, and you collapse. 
Yes, that was that was the story of my life, especially through my 20s, um, which I didn't understand because I left my parents' home when I was 17 and I stopped talking to them completely. And so, you know, by my early 20s, it was like, well, I'm no longer there, so this shouldn't be affecting me anymore, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> in my mind, because it's just so easy to set that trauma aside and just move on, right? Um, but if you're not able to recognize it for what it is, then you don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, you talk about, um, you talked about one side of it, which is the side of driving yourself to perfectionism um, so other people can see you. But really, for me, the bigger piece was driving myself to perfectionism so that I could kind of reconcile those times when, you know, I would, I would go, 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 and build up, build up, build up, and then I would completely crash, Mm -hmm. and I would not, you know, I would not be able to do anything for periods of time, you know, like Mm -hmm. I would just be in bed for weeks at a time and not understand Mm. what was going on, and like I said earlier, take it on as some kind of a moral failing, like, oh, you're just, you're just really messed up, like if you could just get up and do the things that you know you should do, and why can't you, and you know, all of those voices, Um, and so... When I was able to move past that um, and start doing again, it was more the real driving factor behind it was if I could do enough, I could show myself enough that I was okay, Mm. that I didn't have to stay in the shame of what the past period of time had been. And so this time, somehow it will be different. I will not have changed anything, but somehow it will be different. And um, if I just do enough, then it won't matter that I was not able to do before. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate so much the, you talking about the tyranny of perfection and the doing and doing enough, you know, and running and running. And then with all the shame coming back and collapsing you, and then the shame is there with you and you can't really tell anybody or because they're all expecting you to be this person that was doing really well and not only doing well but performing well and so there's this almost two michelles one that was laying in bed going how am i going to get out and another one that was like in front of people smiling and doing and working and working and doing and doing and doing whatever it took yeah if there's one thing our society loves it is a happy productive person Mm. and so you know very few people in my life have ever said when I was in those times of completely driving myself, um, have ever said that it was an unhealthy thing for me. Um, And, you know, like four years ago, um, I entered a program, a long-term women's program. I knew that I needed something long-term because I knew that pattern of my life was pulling it together for a period of time and then falling. And I knew I needed something that was longer term than that so that I could have people help me through those times when I was not able to keep it together. Um, And there was a woman there who was constantly on me (laughs) to Mm. stop doing, Mm. to stop like, you know, this is actually a really unhealthy pattern for you and it's not sustainable and you need to slow down and give yourself a chance to look at that. Um, And that was... It was very difficult for me um, because that had always been one of my greatest assets Mm -hmm. with people. You know, everybody loved how much, you know, I like just leaving my parents' house at 17. I went to college um, and I got my two-year degree in a year and a half and I graduated as student of the year and I got a scholarship to go to Ireland, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. like 
People loved that piece of me, and society really rewards that. And it was killing me at the same time. And you could feel the two. You could feel the achievements and the, you know, going for it and one thing after another after another. And then there was an alcoholic. There was another part of Michelle that was hidden away that was drinking too much or hurting herself or going, going, going. Um, and all of it for something outside of herself, the applause, the that somehow that people would give you kudos. And, and they did. So it became almost addictive. Yeah, I didn't grow up with any sense of self. Um, and I grew up with a lot of stigma. And so I lived my whole life with shame. I had no idea what it was like to love myself. Mm. Um, mm. And so I was constantly seeking that externally. You know, that was the only only place as a child I ever really found mm. that. Um, you know, and growing up with people who don't teach you any emotional skills um, and, you know, probably paired with the fact that we moved so much so I never was able to really get close to anybody. Um, I didn't realize that people knew how to love themselves. Like, that was a thing, you know, and that I was missing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was it was necessary for me um, because it was like, you know, when you don't love yourself, it's like living in a love desert, right? And like, mm-hmm. even though it it looks like an oasis, it's probably a mirage, you know, like, mm-hmm. but it's the only thing that you have. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing that you can see. I'm wondering, as you went through all of this, what was it like for a woman to have to experience all of that trauma, all of that journey of People seeing you for being smart when you were suffering. Nobody really asking you to slow down. I just, just being a man, I'm, I'm not sure what that would be like. Well, I think that a big piece of it is, um, you know, a big piece of my trauma is a lot of sexually based trauma. And when it comes to women, our society does not address that well at all. Whenever you see for the most part, sexual trauma portrayed, it's usually like, oh, there's this big bad guy that, you know, is outside of whatever, and then this person does this act, and then, you know, they, quote-unquote, should be arrested, and and the law, you know, punishment and all that, which even that image is not correct, because even when that does happen, there's very little consequence anyway. um, But Actually, most of the time, it is not some outside bad person. It is somebody that you already know or is very close in your circle and that other people know. And um, and so it's very difficult to, um, to separate yourself from that, um, yourself from the trauma that has happened because mm-hmm. most of the time people still continue to interact with the the person that has harmed you, and it becomes very confusing. Um, and you know, as a woman in the world, you as you meet more women, you just find out that this is so commonplace, mm. um, and it's just almost like an accepted mm. part of our society. Mm. Um, people don't talk about it. You know, the Me Too movement happened a couple of years ago, and that has been that has been really wonderful because it has opened a lot of conversations. But prior to that, it was something that society just doesn't talk about. It's like our society doesn't do feelings well at all anyway. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those are some pretty deep 
complex feelings, mm-hmm. um, especially when, you know, we've kind of been shown all these images of it being one thing, you know, like the outside bad person. And now it's it's not that. It's actually, you know, a complex other human being that has lots of relationships with people that you also have relationships with. Um, and so how do people kind of navigate and reconcile that in a society that refuses to talk about any of that? Um, mm-hmm. And so as a woman, it's... It feels almost as if you are expected to just deal with it silently Mm. and that, um, yes, it has happened, but you should just get over it. You know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Like, it just, it happens. And so, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on kind of a, kind of a feeling. Almost an expectation to give up self to the power of others. And there's almost a systematic training to you as a woman that this isn't really abuse. This is something you should just accept. And don't talk about it. Just do it. And it's a way of kind of minimizing you as as a gender and, and just to kind of disempower you, to be violated. And you can feel like nobody wants to talk about that. Well, I think... Actually, one thing that you said is that, you know, this is not abuse. And I think the more confusing, complex part of that is that it's actually recognized as abuse if you look at it as a concept. Um, And so anybody looking at, you know, a story from the outside would be like, yeah, that's abuse. Um, But it's almost like, yes, we recognize this as abuse. And when it comes down to the personal, you know, everyday level, it's like, you're just expected to continue on anyway. Like, there's an expected level of abuse that women take anyway. That's right. just a part of life, and you're just going to live with it. And it's and it happens because you're a woman. Yes, yes. For no other reason than you are a female, and a male wants your body. And so they take what they want. And it's just this crazy, crazy kind of dialectic of everybody saying, yeah, we know this is a wrong thing, and... As a woman in society, you got to take a certain amount of it anyway because that's the way that it is. And with the exception of uh, even the last couple of years with the Me Too movement and, you know, this is so quiet and so silent and also so much a part of your life. Uh, And being in a long-term community and being around people and trying to say what your truth was, it's not been easy. No. um, You know, and it's not been easy for a number of reasons. One is that because I use my intellect for so long. I I had lots of ways of keeping mm. myself from seeing a lot of the truth of what had happened. Mm. And, you know, over the years as I was slowly, you know, the past four years as I've been slowly able to kind of unpack that stuff and, um, you know, do trauma therapy. Let me put a plug in there for that. That, that has been huge for me and has really changed my life. Um, I've been able to start seeing, like, the actual full reality of it um, because, you know, for my own personal survival, I couldn't look at it all at once. And, mm-hmm. you know, in society as well, it's something that, you know, that people don't want to look at. You know, it's not, that's not a valued thing to pull out this whole thing. Like, oh, we don't want to look at that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. 
you personally can't deal with looking at it, and nobody else wants to look at it all. Um, mm. So it's taken a long time. Um, I just recently was reflecting, like, yeah, that was actually a lot worse than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And a lot more hurtful to this struggle of finding the heart. Yeah, it creates huge barriers to want to be open, mm-hmm. even to yourself. Mm-hmm. To never have experienced an unconditionally loving relationship with anybody, including yourself, and then to want to just open up to that, um, you know, how many people are willing to set aside everything they know to try something that they have no idea what it's going to be like, especially when most of your past experience has shown you that opening in that way even a little bit leads you to getting hurt. It's very difficult. And you you keep talking about this this uh, moment of broken open almost like, uh, you know, just, just trying to find love, trying to find that kind of connection to your daughter that, that was such a struggle. And then it gets a little easier as you find yourself in a long-term community, as you, as you find a trauma therapist, as you work something to kind of find safe places for you to say this— is my truth. As ugly as it feels, this is my truth. And there's something like unfolding for you, something beautiful as you go through that process. I wonder if you could speak to that. Um, I think at the heart of it, you know, is feeling like the incredible strength that comes from letting go of everything you know Mm. and venturing towards something that you have no idea you know, what it's going to be or how it's going to pay off. Um, And it's very empowering. It's very scary. It's very scary to, okay, I'm going to be a really open person. I'm I'm going to really open up my heart. I'm going to feel my feelings. I'm going to recognize my feelings. Um... I'm not going to judge them or suppress them or try to change them or tell myself which ones I'm allowed to feel. I'm just going to feel them. And it's funny because... Our society, like I said, our society does not do feelings well. And, it, you know, most of the time it's if you have a feeling, it is either a good feeling or a bad feeling. And if it's a bad feeling, then you need to fix this feeling. And, you know, come to find out, like, feelings are just feelings. They're not one way or the other. Um, often they can be a bit of an indicator of what's going on with you. But really, at the end of the day, they're just a human phenomenon. Like, we have these feelings. And... Being able to just accept and sit with an emotion, especially one that, you know, we've kind of been trained to recognize as a bad one, um, and just accept it and just be like, okay, here I am, and I'm sitting with this, and I'm okay. And actually, it's kind of freeing, and it's much less difficult than it is to fight against it. Man, it takes so much less energy to just sit with something than to try to block it out. I have this beautiful image of you just uh, laying down in a field and watching the clouds go by and, and having those clouds be your feeling state and just not trying to stop it, not trying to judge it, just noticing them going by. And, of course, like the clouds, they can be an indicator of the day. They can be an indicator of rain coming or a storm coming or just the sunshine and the blueness of the sky. 
uh, and just trying to get myself placed there rather than have shame about the feelings that I do have. And if I can do that, then I can find joy. And if I can find joy, I can find love. Well, joy is definitely a piece of it, but it's not, for me, about finding joy. It's about finding just that place of okay. Mm. I am just okay, no matter what is going on. Mm. Um, Mm. And when I am able to feel that way, then I don't carry shame of feeling, you know, a quote-unquote bad emotion with me into whatever the next phase of my day is, Mm -hmm. and then I am able to feel joy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, it's not a lot. For a long time, it was about chasing joy and how do I I make myself be joyful Mm. Um, and come to find out you can't. Um, But if I allow all of the feelings that I have to come in and just be, then joy is one of them. Mm. And it will come. Mm. You know, as we begin to wrap up this incredible conversation, which I'm very touched by, so thank you. I hear a a few things that really were helpful to you in your journey. One is places where you could really explore your truth without shame or blame. It could be trauma treatment. It could be just just places where you could really share who you were and what you went through and and be able to expose in a, in a way. And then uh, places where there were community, a community of people, long term, so that you just had to stay in relationship with them, so they could see all of you, the moods, the the times when you were on and the times when you were feeling sad and depressed and tired and exhausted. And you wanted somebody to see all of that, and you wanted to do it in community. Um, and also just feel this in kind of important examination of how does my past play out in my everyday, and what do I want to keep, and what do I want to make sure doesn't get attached to me? almost like a daily practice. Yes. Um, and I will say one of the one of the things in recent years that has helped me with that actually um, has been my daughter and her sickness. Um, so cystic fibrosis causes a lot of um, lung infections. And from the age of four, she started getting lung infections and going in the hospital and she'd go in for two weeks at a time. And like between the ages of four and six, I think she had like six separate stays and they started coming like, you know, maybe like two months apart. And so now I am learning how to deal with, you know, the grief and the sadness that comes with that and to accept that as a part of my life Um, and being able to do that kind of on that kind of micro scale and seeing how how it can actually work and I can move forward with that and that it doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to mark my existence. It's just something that happens. Mm-hmm. Was I was able to expand that out then to a lot of the, a lot of the past trauma that was with me as well. Mm. I don't have to see that this event is me. Yes. Very beautifully said. Yeah. I can't uh, 
begin to tell you how much I appreciate this conversation today and your openness and you know I'm and the way in which you speak as a woman to ask other women to talk to each other, share the trauma, don't accept the power over. And I thank you for that. Thank you, Stephen. You will find more information about Conversations in Compassion on my website, www.dignitymaine.com or Health Education and Training Institute, www.hetimaine.com one word, dot org. Please follow me on my Facebook account, facebook.com, HeartQuest number two, HeartQuest all one word. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd love your feedback. So please feel free to leave a note on our sites. <laughs>